Well, good morning to each of you. It's good to be here at Mabel to worship the Lord together. I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. And while you're looking for that, um, it's after Obadiah and before Micah, if you happen to land on one of those. Um, I want to mention when I was in school in, I'm not sure which grade, um, I read a story. And uh, it was a story that I went back to a number of times because it was so compelling. And uh, it's called The Lady or the Tagger by Frank R. Stockton. Probably some of you have read that story, I'm assuming. He wrote it a hundred years before I was born. And in this story, he talks about a king that lived long ago. Think back to the Roman era and... uh, says he was somewhat barbaric, semi-barbaric, but he wasn't totally a bad king. He wasn't just ruthless and trying to, um, you know, a bloody king, Uh, but he did, he tried to rule his people with justice, and um, he had an amphitheater that he had built, and it wasn't one of those that was just to have gladiators fight and, you know, just for the blood, but what he used this amphitheater for was for a justice system. And in this amphitheater, he had two doors built and they were identical built, identical doors. And they were exactly opposite where the king sat. And his method of justice was when someone had committed a crime, they would come in to the arena, they would bow to the king, and then they were to go over and open one of the two doors And behind one of the doors would be the most ferocious tiger that they could find. And on the other door would have been a beautiful lady. And if he opened the door with a tiger, he was instantly met with death. He was assumed guilty. If he met with the lady, he was presumed innocent. And that was, that was the, uh, that was his method of justice. You chose. Well, it happened that this king had a beautiful daughter and she and this young man fell in love and the man was of a very low class or low status in life. And the king, when he found out about it, he found that he thought that was scandalous that his daughter should uh, be uh, involved in a relationship with this young low class man. And so his decision was instantly, you need to go to the amphitheater and justice will be served. Well, the king's daughter had left no stone unturned to find out which door contained the tagger and which contained the lady. And she also found out who was the lady. And it happened to be her arch rival, another lady that served in the the, um, king's court. And this, this other lady was uh, in love with the young man she was in love with. And so she was her, it was her jealous rival. And so when the young man comes out to uh, stand before the king and bow before him, he looks not at the king, he looks at the, the king's daughter and she motions to the right. And so he turns around and he strolls right over and he opens the door the door on the right. But that's where the story ends. 
It doesn't tell you what it was. Was it the lady or the tagger? And so the story leaves you with this question and it leaves you with this, this sense of having to ponder, like what was in the bride or what was in the king's daughter's heart? Did she decide that he should just be killed and that would be the end? Or did she let him live and marry her jealous rabble? It's an unanswered question. Leaves you with that. And that's the title of my message today is an unanswered question because we find in the book of Jonah an unanswered question. I'd like to start in verse 1 and here we find an unwelcome command. Jonah chapter 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. So here's Jonah, an Israelite, a prophet. He was from the town of Gathepther, we read in 2 Kings. And I believe he was living out his life. And he gets this command from the Lord to go to the Ninevites of all things and preach to them that they, God was going to bring deliverance, uh, was going to bring uh, destruction on them because of their wickedness. Now, Nineveh was about 500 miles to the northeast, and it wasn't he couldn't just jump in his vehicle and drive 500 miles. It would have been a long trip. It was the capital of the Assyrian kingdom, and the Assyrians were 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 enemies of Israel. It was a large city. It was a city that we read later that had 120 people living, 120,000 people in it. But what it was known for was its wickedness. It was a wicked city. They were an idolatrous and a proud people. And they were ruthless. They were bent on conquering other nations. And they had long been a threat to Israel. And I believe Jonah felt like Israel, that Nineveh deserved the wrath of God. And when God gave him this command to go and proclaim God's judgment on them, I think if we look within us, we would have found that a very difficult task to undertake. It was a very unwelcome command. Verse 3, we see a useless attempt. Let's read verse 3. But Jonah arose to flee to to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. So instead of heading northeast towards Nineveh, he heads west towards Tarsus. And we don't know exactly where Tarsus was, but most feel like it was out on the far side of Spain. You know, the Mediterranean Sea is like a, a large U, if you will. And it, Spain is here. The Strait of Gibraltar is here and is close to Morocco. And it's just around the corner from the Strait of Gibraltar is where most people feel like Tarsus was. A long, long journey. It was probably 2,500 miles away. So if just to put it in in terms that we can uh, understand if Jonah was stationed in Columbus Ohio and he was told to go to Nineveh which is approximately New York City so he's in Columbus he's supposed to go to New York City instead 
he heads to Los Angeles, a long, long way away. But it says he was attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord. And apparently Jonah had never read Jeremiah 23, 24, where it says, Can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, says the Lord? I mean, where can you go to hide from God's presence? It was a useless attempt. And then in verse 4 through 6, we see an unexpected storm and an unconcerned runaway. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. One of the lessons we learn from this passage in Jonah is God's sovereignty over creation. The, the word, uh, it says the Lord sent out a great wind and the, the idea is that he hurled out a great storm. He threw it out at him. And it contrasts that to the mariners hurling out the cargo, pitching it out. So the Lord pitched down a storm and the mariners pitched out the cargo. But what we see is that Jonah was unconcerned or maybe just oblivious. He was down in the bottom of the ship, fast asleep. Next, we see a useless fear, verses 7 through 9. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and notice this line, and I fear the Lord, uh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah claimed that he feared the Lord. But what does his action show? Did Jonah truly fear the Lord? I think it was basically a lip service to fearing the Lord because he was simply running away from God. If he feared the Lord, it was a useless fear that did not compel him to obey. And then we see an unusual fear in verses 10 through 16. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me, which is the same word hurl, into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it, done as it pleased you. 
So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Here were idol-worshiping mariners, notoriously the hardest people, and yet they turned from worshiping their idols to worshiping and giving vows to the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly. That's an unusual fear from unusual people. Then in verse 17, we see an unlikely Savior. It says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here again, we see the sovereignty of God over nature. God controlled the storm, and now he's controlling this fish and telling him to go and swallow up Jonah. And people think that probably this was a sperm whale, which they can get about 50 to 60 feet long. So does anybody know how long this church building is? I'm guessing it's 30 feet long, something like that. Maybe I was going to step it off, but here we happen to be late. So I don't know. 60 feet. That's uh, what one of our silos is. So they're pretty tall. And so you think about that and how many people you, well, obviously they're not hollow, but there's plenty of room inside a 60 foot creature for a human. Now, how it all happened, how he had air to breathe, how he lived for three days. I don't know that. It was a miracle. But God sent him an unlikely savior. And then we have an uncanny discovery. Verses 2, 1 through 9. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and into the floods surrounded, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look toward, again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. In the pitch blackness of a whale's belly, the light finally came on for Jonah. In that most God-forsaken place, in the bottom of a sea, God, he, Jonah found out that God had not forsaken him. The unpraying prophet learned to pray when he hit the bottom with weeds wrapped around his head. It was an uncanny discovery that God was there in the place where you would most expect him not to be. Then he gives him a second, uh, an undeserved second chance. Verses 2, 10 through 3, 2. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry ground. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Jonah was probably no more excited about doing it the second time than he was the first time. They were still people that he hated. And yet this time, he was willing to go. He was, he was done running away from God. Verses 3-9, through nine, we see an unlikely repentance. <clears throat> so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Neither let man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to the Lord. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh was a very simple message, and yet it was powerful. He said, 40 days and the city is going to be overthrown. And that's the same word that we have in, in Genesis where it says, talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so these Ninevites were wicked people. They were proud. They were ruthless. They were bent on world conquest. And to hear, have this little well, I don't know how little he was, but to have this foreign prophet come into their city on their turf and proclaim that in 40 days, this place is going to be overthrown. It's a wonder they didn't just laugh at him and lop off his head, right? But somehow his message was powerful and it penetrated their hearts and there was deep repentance they were thorough in their repentance. There was believing. There was humbling. There was fasting. There was mourning. There was crying out to God. There was turning from their evil ways and from their violence. So yes, it was a very unlikely repentance, but it was a very thorough repentance. And then in verse 10, we see a U-turning God. Then God saw their works, and that they turned from their evil ways. And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. I believe God was keenly interested to see how these Ninevites would respond to the message that he was sending through, through Jonah. And I believe he was fully intending to destroy the city, to overthrow it, to bring judgment. But he relented or he turned around when he saw that they were serious about turning from their wicked ways. They didn't just pay lip service to God and say, oh, we're sorry, God. We, we kind of messed up. No, this was serious repenting. 
They were turning away from their wicked ways. So as they turned away from their wicked ways, God turned away from destroying them. Next we see an unhappy prophet. Verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He at least knew God pretty well, didn't he? Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me if I die than to live. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? I said that he was an unhappy prophet. That's probably a gross understatement. The ESV footnote here says that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He was totally upset about this. Angry. This was not the outcome he wanted. He was anticipating Nineveh's destruction. And I believe he went out of the city to watch the fireworks and to see the the fire and brimstone fall down. And yet he had this nagging fear that if they did repent, then God would turn around and save them. And so Jonah was angry and he was frustrated and he wanted God to just take his life. And it seems to me that Jonah here was just simply throwing a fit. Next we see an unexpected blessing. Verses 5 and 6. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. I like the King James Version here. It says, exceeding glad for the gourd. You see, Jonah was a miserable man. He had preached to the Ninevites and they had responded, which was not what he wanted. And God wasn't sending the judgment that he was anticipating. And the weather was very hot. And things were not looking to turn out like he wanted. And so while he's out there sitting there in the heat, God sends him this unexpected blessing. This large plant that grew up and provided him with this lovely shade. And Jonah was exceedingly glad. The idea he was almost jumping for joy. Just this plant was so amazing. He was just delighted, this plant. Wow. And then we have the ultimate insult, verse 7 and 8. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was already 
exalted that God had not destroyed Nineveh like he hoped. And now it seems to him that God gave him the ultimate insult. The plant that he was so euphoric about, so happy about, was killed by this annoying little worm that crawls around and chops it off. And not only did Jonah lose his shade, but the Lord sent this scorching hot wind to blow and the sun just beat down on his head. Get the idea of just unmercifully hot. And it may seem a little unfair for God to to treat Jonah that way. And yet God was trying to preach to Jonah now. In verse 9 and 11, we have the unanswered question. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, and I wish we could hear his tone of voice here, because I don't think it was. it is right. It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made to grow, which came up in the night and perished in a night. Should And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? When God asked Jonah if it was right for him to be angry about this plant dying, I think Jonah was just so angry. Here, God had taken away this little bit of comfort that he had provided for him. And he was so angry he couldn't even see straight. But the book of Jonah ends with this unanswered question. Jonah, you had pity on this plant. You were so sorry that this plant died. Should I not pity these Ninevites? This 120,000 souls? And it's a rhetorical question, I know. And the contrast is so stark that it makes the question seem almost ridiculous. Here's a plant, just this little vine. And here's 120,000 souls. And Jonah cared more about that plant than he did the souls. So the message of the book of Jonah, we see the compassionate character of God standing in stark contrast to the selfish and egocentric and the me first mentality of Jonah. You see, God cared about those sailors out there on the sea and he cared about the Ninevites and yet he even cared about Jonah. And his heart was that all men, all men would be saved. And I believe God was exceeding glad. Probably with the same joy that Jonah had about the plan. He was exceeding glad when the Ninevites repented of their wicked ways. Jonah, on the other hand, seems to have cared most of all for his own comfort. And he cared little for the souls of men. And I believe he hated the thought of God saving the Ninevites. And so the genius of the book of Jonah is it leaves the reader questioning who really needed to repent. Was it the Ninevites? 
or was it Jonah? The idol-worshipping sailors were worshipping the true God. The Ninevites had repented of their wicked ways, but in the end, who really needed to repent? Was it not Jonah that really needed to find God? Jonah is is symbolic of the selfish part of us that only wants to serve God and be a part of his family for what's in it for me. I want to be saved. I want to have God's blessing on my life, but I don't care about others. They don't care about the souls of men around them. And it wants to see others judged when they do wrong, but it's blind to our own faults and it expects impunity when we do wrong. So I want to end this message with an unanswered question. And it's one that only you can answer. And that is, is there a Jonah within you? Think about it. Is there a Jonah within you? And what will you do with him if you find him there? I'm going to leave you hanging. You need to answer those questions. God bless you. Let's have a song.